this morning, I want us to talk about the purity and the unity of the church. If you're just now joining us, if you haven't had a chance to listen to uh, our sermons from the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about the church, actually rethinking the church, so to speak. And we're, we're studying the doctrine of ecclesiology, which is just a, a big fancy word for the church. What is the church? What does the church mean? How does the church function? Who makes up the church? And this week, we're going to talk about how the church is set apart, how the church is set apart. And these two main ways that the church is set apart is by its purity and by its unity. And we've mentioned these things a bit as we've talked about the marks of the church. So in the beginning of our series, we thought, we thought about the historical marks of oneness, that the church is one and that the church is holy. So what does it mean to be the church? It's one and it's holy. And then when we kind of skip forward a couple of hundred years, we get to the Reformation and we saw that the purity and the unity of the church was something that reformers wanted to maintain, something that they wanted to flourish in the life of the church. And so they would do that through the right preaching of the word or the, the right administration of the ordinances, things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and even through church discipline. They wanted their church to be united and pure, one and holy. In our more recent attributes, we thought about those seven theological marks, a church who is centered on the word, so the word inspired in the Holy Bible and the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. A church who shares a common covenant that gathers together, making these pledges to one another. A church that shares a common mission that, that knows that we go out to make disciples of the ends of the earth so that God might be worshipped. And a church that is empowered by the same spirit. Well, a church who does all of those things will find great unity. They will be united in their, in their endeavors. And as that church grows in its faithfulness to the word, it will grow in its purity. It will become more like Christ. Hopefully, we're going to see today, and hopefully we already know, that, that purity and unity in the church are really, really important. It's more than just having things to do. It's, it's more than just being around one another and doing fun things. It's, it's maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Paul says in Ephesians. It's growing from one degree of glory to the next in our holiness, as Paul says to the Corinthians. So the big idea is this. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning. The church already possesses, aims for, and grows by purity and unity. I'll say that again. This is kind of the whole message in a sentence. The, the, the church already possesses, it aims for, and it grows by purity and and unity. So we're going to take those phrases and break them up to study together this morning. So first, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The first point this morning is this, that the church possesses purity and unity. If you are a part of the church, you already have a kind of holiness. You already have a kind of set-apartness, and you have already been united to Christ in a way that is once for all, never changing, will never be destroyed, will never be taken away. We are set apart from the world once and for all when we come to Christ. So find with me Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So if you go to the Gospels, Acts, First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Paul is writing this really beautiful section in the beginning of the letter at Colossians 1, we'll start in verse 13. He's, he's thanking the, the Colossian church for, for who they are and for what they've done. He's talking about how he prays for them. 
what, how God should be cultivating in them a, a knowledge of God so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Spirit, or a manner worthy of the Lord, rather. But look at verse 13, Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So just think about this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is the the broken, sinful world that we live in. And, And in Christ, by faith alone, when you and I become Christians, God delivers us from the domain of darkness. Once and for all, we're not going back to there because we have now been transferred where? To the kingdom of his beloved son. So we have now been set apart. We are now no longer of the world. We now live in the world, but we are not of it. We are now a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his beloved son. And then look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, of sin. So not only are we purified, not only are we set apart, but we are now in Christ. So in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we become Christians, we are all in Christ together. You don't have to turn there, but uh, just another example of this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. First Peter Chapter 2, not 2 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 10. This is what he says. Once you, this is the elect exiles among the dispersion that Peter is writing to. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter's saying the same thing. He's saying, look, you once you were not a people, once you were not receiving God's mercy, but now in Christ, you have become a people. You now receive mercy. So now that you have been set apart, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to grow in holiness, in other words. We are now, as Peter says, sojourners and exiles in this world. You are no longer identified um, by, by your residency here on earth. You are primarily identified as your residency in heaven. This place is not our home. That has massive implications for how you live your life, about how you value things, about where you put your love and your time and your money and your resources and your effort and your compassion. You put it in the stuff of this world, the things that are fleeting and will pass away. Do you store up treasures in heaven, as Jesus calls us to do? So we are new creations. We're sanctified by Christ. We're set apart by him. And we now possess this positional purity, this positional holiness, because of what Jesus has given us through his work. So students, when we believe the gospel, we become part of the body of Christ. We're now clothed in the righteousness of Christ once and for all. You are pure. You are holy. You are set apart. And when we're brought into the body of Christ, we are united to him and to the other members. This is a fact that's unchanging. So 
Another example here in Ephesians chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, but you may want to write this down. Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there is one body of Christ. We've talked about this already, the the universal, the invisible, or the little c, the Catholic church. You and I are a part of this body, and that will never change. That is a a fact right now that, that will not be taken away from us. So it's true that you and I live in a kind of purity and in a kind of unity right now, but it is also true that that purity and that unity may not be evident, right? We may not really experience that purity that we've been given in Christ. We may not really be experiencing the, the unity that's been promised to us, that's, that's true of us as being in Christ. The true church is made up of all believers throughout time and space. So, so you and I are a part of this great body of believers all throughout history. And God knows who are his people. Even though there are many church attenders or even visible church members that, if we're honest, are not truly converted. So just because you're a part of the visible body of Christ in a local church may not mean that you are actually converted. It may not mean that you are actually within the the actual body of Christ. I mean, we could just anecdotally, you could probably ask older cousins or older siblings or maybe even your parents. I'm sure if we asked a show of hands in the worship center this morning uh, during the service, how many of you made a profession of faith or got baptized when you were a child, but then something later happened, and after you were a member of a church, you actually came to faith? I think we would be surprised at how many people would raise their hands and say, yeah, I knew a lot of things about Jesus, or I knew a lot of things about the gospel when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, but I realized when I was 24, or I realized when I was a 19-year-old in college that I was living in sin, that I wasn't, I wasn't truly converted. I wasn't really a Christian. I was a member of this church, or I was a member of that church, but I was not a believer. So just because you're a member of a church does not get you into heaven. It doesn't mean that you are automatically united to Christ. The church is also in Christ, So so you and I, as the true church, actual believers, we are in Christ. Our unity is secure. But we often betray that unity, right? Like whether it's here or maybe another church that you've been a part of, the fact is we are sinners. And so we quarrel and we fight and we create factions and divisions and we live with bitterness in our hearts towards other people. and, And we could go on and on. We don't get this right all the time. And so that leads to problems. It leads to disunity. But if we believe that the church possesses purity and unity, what that means is, is that although the unity of the church is never ultimately threatened, we can have hope and trust that the unity of the church is never ultimately threatened. Even still, it can be visibly soiled by our sin. So the world may look at us as this body of believers at Lakeview Baptist Church, and they may make a judgment on us because of the way that we love one another, because of the way that we live our lives, because of the way that we might serve the Lord. 
The unity is not ultimately threatened, but it can be visibly soiled by our sin. So we need to, we need to get at the foundation that the church already possesses purity and unity. But that's not the only way that we interact with purity and unity. Next, point number two is this. The church aims for purity and unity. The church aims for purity and unity. So we just talked about how holiness and oneness, purity and unity is something that the church already has, but it's apparent that the church today is not fully pure. It's not fully united to one another. Like most things in the life of the church, we've talked about this before, we are caught between two ages. We're, ta- we're caught between two times. There is a sense in which things are already true and not yet here. This already but not yet. And it means that the church is going to move towards greater purity and unity. These are things that we must cultivate by the power of the Spirit. So we're going to read together Philippians chapter 2. So turn there. Now that we've seen that God has already given us purity and unity, we're going to see that God is now calling us to grow in these things. Philippians chapter 2. starting in verse 1. Paul writes to the Philippian church, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do not do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we thank you for the many ways that you bless your church. We thank you that in one sense, you have already set us apart. You've purified us. You have made us holy in your sight. And you've drawn us up together as the body of Christ. We are in him. We are with one another. This is true. This will never be broken. And yet we come to this text where Paul is calling on the Philippian church to have the same mind, to, to live a sort of way that's marked by holiness and faithfulness. And we, we confess, Lord, that we are not able to do this in our own power. We need you. We need the power of your spirit to, to encourage us and to empower us and to equip us to be faithful as we move towards greater holiness, greater oneness as the church. So Lord, I pray that as we think about the purity and the unity of the church, that you would help us to see how important this is, that that you have given us both a great privilege and a great responsibility to maintain this unity of the Spirit, this bond of peace, this life that's marked by by holiness. Would you help us, Lord, to, to see and to know your truth, to be transformed by it? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we see in that text that Paul is saying, look, if you have any connection to the body of Christ, if there's any sympathy, any love, any participation in the Spirit, here's what you need to do. He says, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. He said, be united, be together, do things together, live your lives in unity with one another. And then he, he lists some ways that we would live, not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit. So, so don't live your life running after desires of your heart that lead to sin, but, but count others as more important than yourself. In other words, live like Jesus. Live a life that's marked by holiness and, and purity and obedience to God's command. So here we see in Philippians 2 this, this aiming for purity and for unity in the body of Christ here at the church of Philippi. So what this shows us, that we need to think about, is that there are churches who are obeying this command in varying degrees of accuracy. There, there, are, there are some who would say that they are churches who are not churches at all. We would call these false churches. You may think of something, you may have a church come to mind. And what, what I'm thinking about when I think about a false church is a cult that does not believe the gospel and does not proclaim the gospel. So I'm not thinking like, that church that that guy that you don't like that goes to down the road. I'm thinking like Jehovah's Witnesses would be considered a false church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormon churches would be a false church. They may say that they are Christians, but they are not, right? Unitarian Universalist churches, which you may not even know that there is one in town. There is. Um, they might say that, that, that Christianity is welcome there and that that's something that they might agree with or, or hold it. It's not true. Those are false churches. But among true churches, so we have false churches and true churches, among true churches, we have less pure and more pure, right? We have less obedient to Scripture and more obedient to Scripture. So we might have churches who, who may love one another, but they have no desire to share the gospel, with the lost. They have no desire to spread the name of Jesus among the nations. Well, that's a church that's less pure in some ways. Or there may be a church that is, is harboring great sin. I mean, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of a, a church member who is in deep sexual sin, and the church is like, that's okay, no big deal. That is a less pure church. Whereas a more pure church is going to be leading into the Word of God. They're going to be leaning into how we might obey these commands faithfully. Well, how do we, how do we understand purity? Let me just give you a couple, of, a couple of examples. Think about purity of doctrine. Purity of doctrine. So, so we may know churches, or we may know folks who go to churches, that if you ask them what they believe, they may not be able to tell you because they have a less than clear understanding of what Scripture teaches. They may have a less than clear grasp on the historic faith. Whereas churches who are more clear on doctrine will know what they believe and why they believe it. And not just churches, but the individuals within that church, right? So you and I have a responsibility to know our doctrine. And, and why do we need to know doctrine? Let me just throw this out here quickly, because it, it may be helpful to you. I know it was helpful to me. Why is it that we say when we really want to just study God's word and we want to know God, we want to know what he is like, we want to know how he has revealed himself to be, we want to understand these really detailed, complex, intricate things that we find in scripture that some of you are like, that sounds so boring and not helpful and not practical. 
let me just push back all that and say, the one that you love the most ought to be the one you will delight in knowing. So, if I were to explain to you what my wife was like, Whitley, some of you have met her, some of you have not. If I were to try to get up here and explain to you what is she like, what does she look like, what kind of things does she enjoy, what are her fears, what are her joys, what are her passions and pursuits, and I started to describe to you somebody who is not at all like my wife, what would you think about my love for her? You would think, he must not really know her that well. He must not really care about her that well. So if I said like, oh yeah, my wife is eight feet tall and blonde hair, blue eyes, six fingers on her left hand, right? And you're like, what? That's not at all who your wife is. She's shorter than you and has curly brown hair and brown eyes and five fingers on her left hand like everybody else, right? And she's 33 weeks pregnant. Like you, you missed that really important thing. Like she has a baby, like... No, I want to be able to accurately tell you what my wife is like because I love her, because I delight in knowing who she is and what she's like. And, and yes, there are things about her that are really complex and really difficult and things I don't understand yet and may never will. But that doesn't keep me from trying to pursue a greater knowledge and a greater understanding of who she is. Why? Because I delight in her. And students, it's the same way with us as we think about learning who God is and and what he's like. And God has revealed himself to you and to me in scripture in a way that he wants us to know him. And if we say, ah, well, just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that's probably really all I need to know. Then you're betraying the fact that you have a lack of love. A lack of desire for knowledge ultimately stems from a lack of love. So we want to know God. We want to be a church that is pure in our doctrine. And with that, we want to be a church that's pure in our preaching. So how do we handle the word of God? I say purity of preaching, not just on Sunday mornings, but anytime the the word of God is opened in the church. Do we teach what this word says or do we teach what we want it to say? Or do we teach things that may be in it, but not all of the things that are in it? You might find a church that seems really good, but is actually very impure because it's not giving you the whole counsel of God's word. So you might leave a a church service at that church feeling really encouraged and really uplifted and really inspired, but never convicted on your sin. And if you read the Bible, you can't get around being confronted with your sin. So something's being left out. You think about more or less pure churches, we also think about purity of living. So how do the people within that church live their lives? Are they marked by holiness? Are they marked by unity? Do they love Christ? Can you see that in the way that they live? Or is there a complacency with just getting on and getting by? Students, my prayer for us is that we would spur one another on to love and to good works as the scripture calls us to do that you would be in relationships with one another in such a way where if you were caught up in sin, as Galatians 6 tells us, that those of us who are more spiritual would take you and pull you out of that sin, that we would love you enough to hold you accountable to your sin, and that you would see that as a gift, not as a punishment, not as something that you don't need, but as something that you would actually desire. I mean, I see some, we got some 
some, some guys that are here who are athletes. And I, I think all of us would understand this illustration. But let's say I was practicing a move. I know uh, David Hickson knows a thing or two about football. Just pulled him out of the blue, right? Well, let's say David was watching me line up on the line and I was playing like offensive tackle. You'd probably be able to give me some pointers about being an offensive tackle. Yeah, okay. Well, let's say like my stance was terrible. I was really like not doing my hands correctly. Like, like my whole body was just off, right? I was doing a terrible job. But David was like, oh man, just keep doing it. Just keep working hard. Would David be a good coach? No. What does David need to do? He needs to show me where I'm falling short and help me to be faithful to what I need to be doing. So whether it's about I need to put my hands a certain way or my feet a certain way or, or use these muscles or do these things or make this move, I need somebody in my life who can see me for who I am to show me where I'm, I'm lacking so they might bring me up out of that, that lack or I might be falling short. I want to not be falling short anymore. In the same way, students, you've been given a body of believers that, that are able to look at your life and see things that you may not see yourself. These blind spots that we all have, that's, that's part of a, of a more pure church that we would live that way. So that's purity. Very, very quickly, just think about there are more, not just more pure and less pure churches, but there are more united and less united churches. So there are churches who are united in their fellowship. Do they love one another? right? Do you love the people in this room? Do you love the people who will meet in the sanctuary? Are there families that you hold dear to you that don't have your last name? That's going to be a mark of a, of a united church if the love for the brothers and the sisters is real and authentic. A more pure church will be united in worship. Do we love to worship Jesus together? Is there something that when we go to a service and can't sing together, is there something in us that just feels like something's wrong because I can't hear the body of Christ that I'm with worshiping Jesus? There's something off. There's something missing when we can't worship together as we want to do. That's a unity of worship that the Spirit will cultivate in our lives. And then last but not least, a more united church is going to be united in its mission. United in its mission. We we love the Great Commission, right? We love getting the, nation, getting the gospel to the nations. We love pressing you on to, to make disciples here and all around the world. And, and Lakeview is, I think, a good example of somebody who's united, of a church that's united in mission. But are there ways that we could grow in that unity? Absolutely. Are there, are there ways that other churches are united in mission that, that we could learn from? Absolutely. We want to be teachable. But if... If we're a part of a church where everybody's just doing their own thing and nobody's really connected and nobody's really gathering together for a common goal, then it, there's no unity of mission. And that's not to say that the Spirit won't use it. But it's, it's not setting them up for effective ministry. It's not setting them up for effective work. No church is perfect. There are more or less, more or less pure and more or less united churches. And that means that whatever church you ultimately be a part of or are going to be a part of when you move from here or when you go off to college or when you get a job or whatever it is, when you're no longer at Lakeview, the church that you're going to join is not going to be perfect. There are going to be ways in which Lakeview is more pure, more united. There are going to be ways in which Lakeview is less pure, less united. That's okay. 
Maybe he's going to place you in that church so that its unity and purity might grow. Maybe he's using you. Maybe he's gifted you to, to grow that church in purity and unity. But that also means that that personal preferences are not legitimate reasons to leave a church. When should you leave a church? Let's say you go off to college and you join a church and you think it's great, but then you start to realize it's not what you thought it was. When should you leave? What are legitimate biblical reasons? Here are some questions from, from Greg Allison, a guy who wrote a really helpful book on the church. Just listen to these questions and think, are these the kind of questions that I would ask? Have I expended all of my opportunities to affect change in this church? So before you leave, you ask that question. Have I done all that I can to try to right the wrongs that I see? Will continued participation in this church exert a negative impact on my relationship and worship of God? A negative impact on my ministry for Jesus? Or a negative impact on my use of my spiritual gifts? Next question, do I have to compromise too much? Essential doctrines or essential practices or a lifestyle in accordance with biblical values and principles? Or do I have a legitimate reason for leaving? Maybe there's unconfessed sin among the leadership and everybody knows it, but they're harboring sin. Or maybe it's clearly false teaching from the pulpit. Maybe it's somebody is clearly mishandling the word of God and is leading that flock astray. There are legitimate reasons to leave a church. There are many, many, many illegitimate reasons. One day, we won't read these, but in Ephesians chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 7, we see that the church will experience full unity and full purity. One day, we will be presented to Jesus as a, as a bride, washed with the water of the word, spotless and blameless. And one day we will, along with every tongue and every tribe and every nation, gather around the throne, united together, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. That's our hope. That's our aim. That's where we're going. So the church possesses purity and unity, but it also aims for purity and unity. Last but not least, and we'll fly through this last point, but the church actually grows by purity and unity. It may be a little confusing, Let's clarify it. Not, not only does the church grow in purity and unity, but it grows by purity and unity. So how does a church flourish? How does it become more mature? How does it grow? By growing in purity and in unity. Students, do we want the church that we're a part of to be a more effective witness in the world? Do we want the church that we're a part of to, to more abundantly glorify God through Christ? Do we want the church to be the light of the gospel, to light the gospel and let it shine from us to the ends of the earth? Do we want the kingdom of God to come to bear on the sin sick and broken world around us in Auburn and Opelika and around the world? The answer is yes. I think we all want those things to be true. So how do we grow in these things? By pursuing purity and unity the way that the church becomes increasingly glorious is by growing in its purity, its holiness, and its unity, its oneness. As it grows in clarity of doctrine and faithfulness of its members, the handling of the word of God, the church will flourish. And as members lean into one another, as we actually dig into one another's lives, 
as we love them as Christ loves them, as we serve more closely together towards a common mission, as we worship the one true God together in spirit and truth, the church will grow. We're to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I've referenced that phrase, that verse, Ephesians 4, a lot. This is a practice of the church. And if we're united in the spirit, we will be led by the spirit to produce its fruit. We learned all about that a few weeks ago from Galatians chapter 5. But how do we cultivate, how do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? By walking in the Spirit. Now, this may seem like a, a duh concept, right? Like, how does the church grow? By being holy, by being united. H- how does the church become more like a family? By acting like a family. Oh, yeah, okay. That makes sense, right? But notice what this means. This means that if, if purity and unity is the way that the church grows, it means that other ways of growing the church will not ultimately sustain. There are other ways that we could think about trying to grow the church or trying to grow this ministry in particular. Things like entertainment or production value or buildings or money or power or cultural influence. None of these things are necessarily bad, but none of these things will grow the church in the right way. Growth does not necessarily mean bigger. When I say the growth of the church, I don't just mean growing in size. I mean growing in maturity. We are not like the world. The world lives off of achievement and ambition and influence and sensuality and emotionalism and more. And because of that, the tactics of the world to grow things in our hearts and minds seem really attractive. Like bait. They look really attractive, but they are not what they seem. We experience God's blessing and his presence, not when we accomplish the most projects or boast about the most conversions, or display the most beautiful buildings, or promote the most attractive versions of walking with Jesus on social media. Although service and decisions and physical growth and happy lives are not necessarily bad, you should, that's fine. Like we should want those things in one sense, but they are not biblical indicators of spiritual maturity. So students, we can rest as the church in the finished work of Jesus and then allow his spirit to spur us on to greater holiness and greater oneness as the people of God. And as we lean into those things, God will be pleased. The church will become more purified and unified. It will flourish into a beautiful bride fit for her husband. So let's go together. Let's do these things together in the power of God and run after purity and holiness, purity and and oneness. To love the God who first loved us, to glorify him by our obedience to him and our love for one another. I'm going to pray and and get you off into your groups. But before I do that, I just want to read a section of Scripture to you. And you may want to look at this a little bit more in your groups, but it's from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm not going to explain it. I think just based on all that we've talked about, you can just listen intently to what I'm about to read and think about this for yourself. Think about this for our own church. 1 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. This is what Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. You are majestic. In all of your ways, you are righteous and good. And we love you. We adore you. We worship you. King of kings, Lord of lords, Father, Son, and Spirit. And now we ask that as we go to this time of discussion, conversation of kind of decompressing some things, that you would help us to see how we as teenagers, as we as students can, can pursue for the sake of your glory, greater holiness, greater unity as the church. Help us to see that all of the ways of the world pale in comparison to how you have revealed to us how we might grow and flourish as the body of Christ. And help us, God, to remember that we already possess this holiness and this purity. We have everything we need, Peter tells us, for life and for godliness. So God, help us. Help us to know you. Help us to see how you have blessed us and gifted us. Help us to see how you've blessed us with one another for the sake of your glory and for the holiness and purity and unity of your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.